0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from John 1, chapter 15 through 18. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God so in uh 2016 i believe it was uh the oxford dictionary uh every year they put out a word of the year and in 2016 their word of the year that year was Uh, post-truth post-truth is essentially it's an adjective that uh, is really defined as uh, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion then appeals to emotion and personal belief. This was their definition of post-truth. Uh, and in their de- defending of their choice and making this uh, the word of the year, uh, they were noting that it, you know the term has largely centered around uh, politics. It had existed for about a decade, and they cited various uh, popular uh, political post-truth ideas, uh, ideas like President Bush had... Uh, was behind 9 11 or President Obama had started ISIS. Uh, these were some of the post truth ideas that uh, kind of started this movement. However, in 2016, uh, there was a, a post the whole idea of post truth really became kind of center to a lot of political discourse that was taking place. Because at that time, it seemed as though truth no longer really mattered. Instead, political expediency and personal autonomy and expressions and the like, that then became the priority to a a whole new degree. Notions of truth, for some, no longer mattered because if lies and deceptions uh, led to desired ends, then so be it. So for others, uh, the notion of truth wasn't so much about maybe political ends, but the notion of truth even became oppressive for some. The idea being, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and any attempt to assert your truth over my truth is an injustice. And while this might be a slight exaggeration, don't get mad at me, it's a slight exaggeration, uh, the rejection of uh, the objectivity of truth for political expediency came to be known as kind of a feature of right-wing politics. And a rejection of the objectivity of truth for the sake of personal autonomy or self-definition tended to become a feature of left-wing politics, all of which has created a mess of a cultural moment where discourse has come to an absolute standstill because it often feels like we're speaking completely different languages at times. It feels like we are living in completely different worlds than the person that is our next-door neighbor. And so in a world like this, in a cultural moment like this, what do we do with the words of our passage that says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ? What do we do when Jesus, later in John 14, he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life? What do we do when Jesus and the testimony of the scriptures assume objective truth. Truth that transcends our conceptions of truth or our desire to know truth. What do we do when truth becomes confrontational to us? And what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, over the last uh, couple of weeks, if you've been with us, we have been in a series called uh, From Heaven to Earth, the Mystery of the Incarnation. Uh, It's been an Advent series looking at John 1, by considering who Jesus is and the incomprehensible reality that God became flesh in the incarnation. And we've seen that Jesus, in week one, we saw that Jesus was the Word or, or the Logos. Uh, last week, we saw that Jesus is the light. And this week, we're going to consider that Jesus is the truth. And so to do so, I want to consider some claims about truth itself. All right. so let's consider... The truth as objective, the truth as confrontation, and the truth as comfort. Okay, so first, uh, truth as objective. We need to wrestle with, first, whether or not truth is objective or not. Meaning, are there certain realities that transcend time and space and even knowledge? Are there things that are true, whether or not we believe them to be true? I think in, in, for the most part, many believe that's the case, you know, just consider maybe in kind of the scientific realm, whether we believe in gravity, it's kind of irrelevant to whether or not gravity exists. Or our belief that we can or cannot walk on water or breathe underwater really doesn't have any bearing on whether or not it's true that we can't walk on water or breathe underwater. You know, there are uh, YouTube videos that might say otherwise, but the fact that the earth is round and orbits the sun is true whether or not one believes it to be true or not. I mean, what about some metaphysical realities? Consider realities like morality. You know, is murder wrong? Is it immoral regardless of whether or not you believe it to be so? I think most would say Yes, that's the case. You know, murder was wrong 10,000 years ago. Murder will be wrong 10,000 years from today. Most would agree that murder is inherently intrinsically wrong, whether or not we believe it to be wrong or not. What about love? What is love? You know, it isn't something that we can see or that we can touch or that we can smell, and yet it's powerfully real, isn't it? I mean, people live their lives for it. They give their lives for it. They make fools of themselves as a result of it. They feel invincible when it's received, and they feel devastated when it's rejected. Though it seems intangible and we can't touch it, we also know that it's objectively real. Now, I start here because there can be no engagement with the idea of truth unless we are at least willing to acknowledge that some kinds of truth exist objectively we can debate what may or may not be true but that debate presupposes that truth exists and that truth can be known and so i would hope we can at least start from that assumption that there is something objective about truth how then can we know though What is true? Well, that brings us to the second claim about truth, that truth is not only objective, but that truth is also a confrontation. Uh, In the beginning part of John's gospel account, uh, he begins with a very controversial idea, and he started off by addressing the Logos, which we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. If you remember from uh, from that week, the Logos, in Greek philosophy was the purpose or the meaning of existence. We, we call it the word, they called it the logos. It was, it was the, the purpose and meaning of existence. For the Jewish people of the day, the logos, it was the, the word of God, right? The truth of the moral absolutes at the foundation of all reality. And so for both the Jews and the Greeks, it was this intangible yet completely orienting force of the universe, the logos wasn't something you could touch, or feel, or study, or measure, but it was through the Logos that we understood everything within our existence. In other words, John argued that the truth, like capital T truth, has now become flesh. The objective nature of truth was embodied in the person of Jesus. That idea was as controversial then as it is today. I mean, look at how John describes this incarnation in verse 16. He says, Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So, if Jesus is the embodiment of truth, then if I am going to discover what is ultimately true, then my life and my thinking and my convictions and my purpose and meaning, foundations of life, must revolve around him. It only makes sense, does it not? If he is capital T truth, Everything about who we are ought to revolve around him if we want to understand what is actually true. So let's get very practical. When Christ, as truth, has something to say about personal morality, what we should and should not do in our lives, if our opinions run contrary to him as truth, then by definition we're living lies. When Christ as truth has something to say about our attitudes or our thoughts, if our opinions run contrary, then we are living lies. When Christ as truth has something to say about justice and what justice requires of us, if our opinions run contrary, we are living lies. When Christ as truth has something to say about sacrificial giving or loving our spouses or children or being a good neighbor, if our opinions run contrary, then we are living lies. And most importantly, when Christ as truth has something to say about who he is, who we are, what we need, and what it means to pick up our cross and follow him and give our whole lives to him, if our opinions run contrary, then we are living lies. And as a result, Jesus as truth, it is a confrontation with anything that exists within us that runs contrary to him as objective truth. Now, we need to sit with that long enough to feel the burden and tension that that produces. We need to sit with that long enough to feel the weight of it, because no one wants to believe themselves deceived. Everyone wants to think that they know or hold truth. But unless Jesus is the centerpiece of our conceptions of truth, then we are going to be susceptible to deceptions. We don't want to believe that maybe what we believe is not the result of truth, but rather the result of some kind of other external force that has shaped our conceptions of truth. We want to believe that we know what is true, and yet if Jesus is not the center of it, then we're living lies. The culture from which we come, the experiences that we've had, the period in history in which we live, my friends, can all play a role in what we believe to be true. And something I find particularly concerning is that the consequence, often, when we become so enamored with cultural ideas of what truth is, we can then start to begin taking theological convictions, merging them with our cultural understandings of truth and believe then that our cultural understanding of the world is Jesus' truth, when in reality, it's purely cultural. Let me give you an example of what I mean. So in the West, we of course live in uh, a culture and a society with certain ideals. We are democratic, we're capitalistic, we're individualistic. Now, all of these ideas, they do have Jesus truth in them. They all do. But all of those ideas are also deeply cultural, momentary, and fallen ideas. So as much Jesus truth as there might be in democracy and capitalism and individualism, they're all also very fallen ideas as well. But for many, those ideas have been baptized with a capital T truth as though they are inherently Jesus truth, when they're not. Democratic, capitalistic, individualistic ideas are not purely Jesus truth. I once heard a pastor uh, tell a story of a young, uh, very ambitious, and staunchly conservative southerner who ended up going to school in Scotland And while there, he met some deeply theologically conservative, Jesus-loving Presbyterians who were socialists, who came to that political idea through their biblical convictions. And it was a paradigm shift for this person. How could these Christians be biblically convinced of socialism? Now, of course, similar to democratic capitalism being fallen, but also possessing Jesus truth. Uh, It's also fair to say that socialism is also a fallen system that maybe does also possess some Jesus truth in it. But for some, the very notion of socialism possessing Jesus truth at all, and that Christians might actually come to the conclusion that it's a biblically faithful way to approach governance, is inconceivable. And I note this not because I'm a socialist or because I'm looking forward to any particular emails that anyone might want to send me this week, but rather to simply point out that even Christians are susceptible to baptizing cultural ideas as being Jesus' truth, when in reality, they may have lost sight of Jesus within their web of cultural captivities in which they find themselves. And over the course of church history, there have been so many examples of self-proclaimed Christians who thought they held truth, but because of cultural captivities, were actually putting theological justifications on lies. I mean, over the course of history, of course, you've got the quintessential examples, the crusades and colonialism and enslavement, all of which, my friends, had theological justifications for violence and the stealing of land and exploitation of fellow image bearers. All of them did. But lest we assume that that is just some issue of yesteryear, Christians on the full political and social spectrum have continued to make terrible excuses for terrible uh, leaders, terrible policies, terrible ideologies, all with theological rationale to justify their positions. When in the end, their supposed commitments to quote-unquote truth is not Jesus' truth, but assumptions of truth based on their cultural captivities. My friends, we all do it. And the task is the necessity of untangling the task of the church, the task of those of us here that would consider ourselves followers of Jesus is to untangle Jesus' truth from the messy web we created with our own cultural captivities to cultural ideas, time-bound moments, and maybe even at times sinful inclinations. And the ability to do so rightly, right now, is actually creating a bit of a crisis in the church. I want to just take a moment to address a cultural moment that we find ourselves in that many uh, might not be aware of, so what I'm about to say might be very new to some of you, Uh, Others of you here might be painfully aware of what I want to describe, but I want to just pay attention for a moment to what's being called the deconstruction movement taking place right now in our culture. Because the ability to rightly divide the word of truth has created tensions for many people. It's really messy out there if you're paying attention. And here's where I'm finding myself land as I watch the landscape of the deconstruction movement. There are some who are out there truly deconstructing their faith. And what I mean by that, I mean they're truly deconstructing in a way that is leading them to reject Jesus' truth. They reject his word, they reject his commands, they reject him ultimately, and as a result, they have fallen into grave error by deconstructing their faith in this way. But, frankly, there are many more out there right now who are deconstructing their faith, not by rejecting Jesus, not by rejecting his word or his commands, but by rejecting the harmful and cultural captivities of the church. Their deconstruction is a genuine attempt to rightly divide truth from error, errors that Christians have allowed to pervade. Recently, uh, Paul Tripp, who is a very well-known and highly respected uh, biblical counselor and theologian, uh, he was interviewed recently about his involvement with a church that was found to possess, in his words, uh, the most toxic leadership culture that he'd ever seen in all of his years of working with churches. It was a culture that was full of misogyny and arrogance and manipulation and deceit, and it was a church that had taken all of those characteristics and interwove them with theological convictions. And so in the wake of this abusive culture taking place in that church. He was reflecting on the deconstruction that occurs for people coming out of toxic church environments like that, where the abuse is interwoven with supposed theological convictions. And he said something that struck with me. It's a little bit of an extended quote. I do have it here for you. Let me read this for you. If you guys uh, want to throw up, throw up this quote, this is what he said. he said. He said, we should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do it. Because our faith becomes a culture, a culture so webbed into the purity of truth that it's hard to separate the two. And we better do some deconstructing or we're going to again and again find ourselves in these sad places. For me, I've accepted I'm going to be a sad man for the rest of my life because I get calls all the time about the saddest things happening in the church. I celebrate the church of Jesus Christ and the places where it is a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. I love the gospel. I have no other wisdom than that, but I'm sad for the church. And I'm I'm sad that we've become so loyal to this culture that we're afraid to deconstruct in places where it's lost its way. It's harmful, and it's producing things that allow the world to mock and cause young people to walk away. There is a remarkable humility that comes when you're willing to deconstruct something you've given your whole life to. I've been sitting with that quote all week because I think there's something profound, that there is a deconstruction that needs to happen where we untangle Jesus' truth from cultural ideas that have time and time again caused the world to mock us as a church, as a body of believers, Church of Jesus Christ, and has caused people to walk away. Detangling these things is a necessary deconstruction, and to his point, it can take a lot of humility to be able to acknowledge those issues. My friends, as a leader, I've been pastoring for many years And I can tell you, as I think back on my ministry, there are all sorts of different cultural ideas that I baptized as Jesus' truth and as a result, harmed people. I could name them for you. I won't right now. By God's grace, there are actually some that are part of our congregation that knew me back then and God sustained them and held them through some of the more poor decisions and teachings that I presented and they still love Jesus. That is a work of God's grace. But I'm telling you, I've experienced that personally. I've experienced the kind of humility that it takes to be able to acknowledge and say, I was wrong. I said something was of the Lord. I baptized something as Jesus' truth. But in the end, it was my own cultural captivity. For those that's uh, maybe hearing me, and you know what I'm talking about, because you've sat under my ministry in those times, I've asked... forgiveness, I will ask for it again. And even now, if I'm realistic and I'm honest, I I recognize I'm not past this. Lord, help us if we ever assume that we're past this kind of work that needs to be done of detangling our faith from cultural captivities. Because the difficult task, my friends, is that we need to untangle the Jesus truth from the messy web that we've created with our own captivity to cultural ideas, those time-bound moments. I don't know where everyone is here in understanding the dynamics of what's happening right now in the deconstruction movement, but the deconstruction movement right now should not be viewed with disdain or with contempt. The deconstruction movement should be viewed as an opportunity for the Church of Jesus Christ to really wrestle with where it's dishonored the name of Christ by idolatrously allowing cultural captivities to shape an understanding of faith, an understanding that proves itself to be lies. It doesn't mean that we hold to what's true. There are certain gospels, one of the things that struck me about Paul Tripp's words, I have no other wisdom but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we hold on to those truths. We don't let them go. We don't deconstruct to the point that we aren't putting our hope and our faith fully in Jesus. The deconstruction happens where we recognize, where we have not put our hope and our faith fully and completely in Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to all of us would just be, the bottom line is this, is that Jesus, as truth, confronts us in profound ways and leaves us all untouched. Or leaves us all not untouched, I should say. If we don't feel the weight of how easily we can fall into error, then we're deceiving ourselves. And I'll also just say before I move on, if we're here... And all we can do is think about other people or other groups that we think are deceived. And we're missing what the Spirit of God wants to do in us right now. This is not about other people. This is a call, my friends, for each one of us to take a look at our own lives to see where we have allowed non Jesus truth to become truth to us. Because it's in those places that we're living deception, we're living lies. Now, that said, truth is not a subjective idea. Truth is an objective thing, and it's Jesus who embodies that truth. But truth as a person in Jesus, it not only comes as a confrontation to us, you know, it not only comes and brings a burden and a weight to the ways that we have not fully trusted in ultimate truth. It's not just a confrontation, but truth as a person also leads to truth as a comfort. Finally, let me explain to you what I mean. Look at verse 16 again. Verse 16 says that out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. What does that mean? Well, in his uh, commentary on John, the great reformer John Calvin is uh, showing the extent to which Christ is the, the centerpiece of truth and blessing. He's arguing that if he is the Logos, right, if he is truth, then, of course, any conception of life outside of him ultimately terminates on meaninglessness. And so with that in mind, Calvin says this. Again, I have this quote up here for you. That God has determined that whatever is good shall reside in Christ alone. Accordingly, we shall find angels and men to be dry, heaven to be empty, the earth to be unproductive, And in short, all things to be of no value if we wish to be partakers of the gifts of God in any other way than through Christ. But then he goes on to say that God assures us that we shall have no reason to fear the want of anything, provided that we draw from the fullness of Christ, which is in every respect so complete that we shall experience it to be a truly inexhaustible fountain. Hear this, my friends. Jesus' truth, and the recognition of him as such means that there is no reason to fear the want of anything. Why? Because of what John tells us. He says that we have received grace in place of grace that's already been given. Other translations of this scripture say that we've been given grace upon grace. It's a never ending flow of grace. It's a truly inexhaustible fountain of grace because Jesus is truth. It's a never ending flow of this grace because Jesus is truth. The law given to Moses was a grace. But then the coming of Jesus as the fulfillment of that law was a grace on top of that previous grace. And then the righteousness of Christ, given to us by faith, is another grace upon grace. The cross of Christ, which is the forgive, for the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of our relationship with God, is another grace upon grace. The resurrection of Jesus, which proves that death has lost its sting for those in Christ, is another grace grace upon grace. The sending of the Holy Spirit, the one who produces the hope of glory in us, is another grace upon grace. When we recognize Christ is truth, we discover that there is, in the words of Calvin, this truly inexhaustible fountain of grace for us, a grace that flows from his truth. It is a grace that allows us to rest in knowing the truth, Jesus Christ, knowing that he knows us, that he loves us, that he desires what's best for us, and as a result empowers us to walk away from lies and deceptions that so easily entangle us. And this Advent season is an opportunity to be reminded once again that Jesus is not just a baby in a manger, but that in that manger is the embodiment of truth, And from that truth comes grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for those that trust in him. And so may this Advent season be an opportunity for us to once again hope in him, trust in him, rest in him, in him alone. May the Spirit of God help us do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that though we may wander as that hymn says, uh, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God, we are truly prone to that. Searching for truth in places where we will only find lies. Allowing the cultural captivities of the moment to be interwoven with Jesus' truth, thus producing lies. God, No truth exists outside of you as truth. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us would recognize the extent to which you must be center. That our lives must revolve around Jesus, the one who is truth. For it is there that we find all meaning, all purpose, all hope, all joy, all rest. Spirit of God, would you make plain to us the ways that we have not allowed this to be the case and would you also lead us back to our Savior that we might experience that inexhaustible fountain of grace upon grace upon grace. And may this Advent season be a profound one for us as we again look upon Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to The Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.